This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs-Wise and Kat Maudlin-Jackson, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O, the N, the D. That's my self-teaching. The R, the I, the C, the H, the N, the O. Good morning, Richmond. Good morning, Kat. Good morning, Chelsea. And good morning, listeners. It's September 4th, 2019. And depending who you are, and the narrative that you stand by, you could be celebrating or commemorating a few different things. 2019 represents 400 years from the very first House of Burgesses, our first legislative form of government. 2019 also represents the 400th year of the first documented Africans that were trafficked to the shores of Virginia. The stories are being told all over the state and all over the world this year. How do we tell the story in Richmond? Luckily, we've got some guests here today from the Oswald Conference, the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora. The conference is November 5th through the 9th, and Kat and I, as hosts of Race Capital, really understood that we have to bring this conversation to our platform, not just to hear the voices and know the story, but to be able to continue it on after 2019 to how we tell our story here in the Capital Confederacy. So let's start with the experts. Dr. Robert Trent Benson and founder of the Sankofa Project, Shadra Pittman. Today on Race Capital, I'm really excited about these guests, and I'm guessing that these guests are going to be new to many of the listeners, which makes me even more excited because just sitting down with them and researching the stories and the knowledge that they have, I've already learned so much. Just a couple weeks ago, I know a lot of you all heard about the 1619 Fest that happened down in Williamsburg, right out of Jamestown, the James City Marina. I met a a remarkable queen that has been doing the remembrance work. And then I also hear that she's helping put on a conference that is being held in November and parts of it is being held right here in Richmond too. So I said, girl, come on, let's talk, bring your people and let's share with Richmond what's what's going on. So I really love to welcome Shadra. Thank you. Introduce yourself, tell the people about all the amazing reasons why you are important to this work. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you, Chelsea. Thank you for inviting us here. Uh, My name is Shadra Pittman and I am the institutional liaison conference coordinator and public relations uh, person for the OSWAD 2019 conference. And OSWAD is an acronym for the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora. And so, you know, this work is incredibly important to me. Mm-hmm. My background is anthropology and African-American studies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I formerly worked at the New York African Burial Ground Project, where I was a public educator and a media coordinator. I uh, did that for about four years. And since that time, I've worked with uh, NASA pioneer Katherine Johnson. Um, my work is really around excavating history. I tell people, you know, my form of anthropology, I'm not an archaeologist, I don't dig, mm-hmm. I don't do that, but I dig up history. And so I say I excavate history. And so part of those stories, those untold stories, are the stories of Katherine Johnson, are the stories of the remembrance ceremony that we do at Buckrow Beach annually. Mm. Um, our next one is June 11th. Okay. June 13th, I'm sorry, 2020. 
And we pay homage to the Africans who perished in the Middle Passage. And I always say that those are the Africans that uh, that the world forgot. Mm. And so I'm so excited to be a part of this um, Oswa 2019 conference. And it's just the amount of scholarship, mm-hmm. activism, the people that are involved in the conference, the minds, I always say the brilliance behind Oswald is really sitting to my right, which, be, which would be Dr. Robert uh, Trent Vinson, who is the Oswald 2019 project leader, who is really the brains behind bringing Oswald to William and Mary. And um, so it is just, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to work with him. And, and I'm really excited that we're going to be up here in Richmond. We're going to be in Williamsburg, as well as in Hampton and Fort Monroe. So we're really going to be taking over the Commonwealth in a beautiful way. And so another piece that I know Richmonders can connect with you, because you mentioned the burial ground up in New York yes. and that Remembrance Project. And I know many of the conversations here about the East Marshall Street project at VCU are really trying to mimic some of your efforts that were happening up in New York as well. So I just wanted to take the moment to connect to people as well that what you're doing extends to so much that we are also trying to do here in Richmond as well as across the country. Absolutely. It's all connected. I mean, I used to tell people that, you know, if people didn't give didn't care about the actual living bodies mm-hmm. of Africans during slavery. Why would they care about the bones, mm. right? So if you don't care about the flesh. Right. I just did a talk not that long ago when the cargo was human and the trade was flesh. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just speaks to a, a lack of respect for humanity and of black lives. Right. Um, whether those are ancestral lives or whether those are physical lives as in Eric Garner or uh, Rakaya Boyd or Tamir Rice or Emmett Till or Megger Evers or Sandra Bland. I mean, you can go on forever. Right. So the work of the burial ground, you see this in many different areas where there are black cemeteries. Mm-hmm. They are covered over. Mm-hmm. In a lot of cases, you know, these were impoverished communities. These were enslaved populations. Right. They did not have tombstones. There were no huge grave markers. There was no big gate saying that this was the burial ground. We found them on historical maps. And because of that, you know, the Negroes burying ground was designated. They thought, oh, we're not going to find anything. Right. 419 intact burials later. They were taken to Lehman College where they were not treated well. They were not cared for properly, mm-hmm. scientifically. And so Dr. Michael Blakey took them to Howard University. And Dr. Blakey also is involved with regards to the Oswald 2019 conference. Awesome. So it's, 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 it's incredible how it's, it's really come full circle. But this notion of preserving our history right. and looking at our history and our culture is really what Oswald is about. It's, right. it's looking at the entire diaspora and all the places where African people have touched the earth right. and the great things that they're doing there, there in those places and they're bringing them all back to William and Mary in November, November 5th through the 9th for right. the conference. So really making space for this and you mentioned an expert that we do have. I'm so excited to hear more about the information you're going to bring here. Dr. Robert Trent Vincent, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Chelsea. It's wonderful to be here. So tell us a little bit about your work um, at the field. I know you're at William and Mary and now taking head with this conference and bringing it here. So tell us a little bit about you as well as the importance of bringing this conference conference to Virginia. Sure. I'm a professor of history and Africana studies at William and Mary. Been there since 2006. I've written two books, one on the Garvey movement, the Marcus Garvey movement in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Second book was on Albert Lutuli in South Africa. Lutuli was Africa's first Nobel Peace Prize winner. He was Mandela before Mandela. That's right. what I'd like to 
say about him. And he was the leader of the anti-apartheid struggle in the 1950s and 60s. But since he was assassinated by the state in 1967, people sort of forgotten about him. Mm. So that was the second project. And now I'm very excited to work on this intellectual project of Oswald, mm -hmm. Oswald 2019, a different kind of intellectual project. We're going to be bringing a thousand scholars and activists mm -hmm. from 30 different countries from around the world to Oswald 2019 in November. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm extraordinarily excited about. And in that process, I've been doing some work around the 1619 Africans and their backstory in mm. Africa and, and the importance of it, reflecting, remembering, right. reflecting and honoring those ancestors and what it means for us today. Exactly. And is a, a factor that is the 400th year that happened right here in February, is that why Oswald is here this That's year? right. That's yeah. right. We, it's a competitive bidding process. So a number of cities and universities compete to have Oswald come. Oswald has had conferences all over the world. Spain, wow. Ghana, Barbados, Brazil, Dominican Republic. I can go on and on and on. And New York, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my home state. So it was an honor for us to win the bid. And right. we beat out the finalists were us and Emory at Atlanta. So we beat out wow. Emory. Black <laughs> and, heaven. And, and part of it was, <laughs> as, you, as you say, because of the 1619-2019 dynamic mm -hmm. of these first enslaved Africans to English North America coming at this point and understanding that there would be all of these remembrances this year, mm -hmm. that took us over the top because it was the right time and place. Yes. And I actually really love that it's towards the end of the year Absolutely. because now we're we're in the groove of it. We're understanding what's happening. People have heard a little bit more of the story, so our curiosity is spiked. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're ready. Like this is a this is a good moment uh, for our listeners and for us. Remind us of the 1619 story that is being told right now in, in many spaces across the country, especially thanks to, to New York Times. But I think it's so important to have the people that are coming out of the place and space of this history that have been doing the work academically as well as the work in the community to hear those voices and the stories from you all. I've been a big fan of the Lemon Project for a while, and you are co-founder of that. Dr. Vincent, so give Race Capital the 1619 story. Sure. So 1619 begins racial slavery in English North America and what becomes the United States. But it's not the beginning of our history, obviously, right? Right. So we all know this, but it's always important to remind folk that our history goes far back. I mean, we, we come from Africa, right. the cradle of humankind. So when we talk about the beginning of humanity, we are talking about Africa, and we're talking about all those great civilizations of Egypt and Nubia and Mali and Sudan and Ghana and Songhai, and we can go on and on. So we always frame our discussion in that way, that our history is much broader and deeper, and in some ways, Slavery is a type of aberration. It's a real aberration to our longer history. And it's also not the beginning of slavery okay. in the world, right? right? Because we know that slavery is in all of the ancient civilizations of Egypt and China and Greece and Rome. And in fact, the word slave comes from Slav, which are Eastern European peoples who were enslaved, particularly during the Crusades. And in the year 1619, there was still a quarter of a million white people enslaved, mostly in the Mediterranean and North Africa and also in Russia. So we have this long history of slavery. But right. if we're talking about 1619, what makes that unique is that because it's the beginning of a, a sort of racially specific mm. slavery in North America. And it also brings the English into an existing system of the transatlantic slave trade, okay. which had started in 1502. So by the time we get to 1619, half a million enslaved Africans have come across the water already. But they're going to South America, particularly Brazil, and to the Caribbean, 
So that's where they're primarily going. Mm-hmm. And this is primarily a Portuguese and Spanish venture. What makes 1619 different is because this is incorporating the English into this developing transatlantic slave trade. I appreciate that I asked for the 1619 story and you started before 1619. Right. <laughs> Change the narrative. I'm a historian. I, I have love to go it. back <laughs> to the beginning. So I've been lucky enough to be part of the conver- some of the conversations in Jamestown, Williamsburg, Hampton, and been down to hear some of the stories. But I've also heard this um, back and forth between like the Jamestown story and the Hampton story. Tell me a little bit about what that is rooted in and what we should really know about that. So those 20 and odd Negroes, that was the description given by John Rolfe in Virginia describing who they were. He was describing them coming to Point Comfort, which is now Hampton, Virginia. All right. So actually, let's let's back up. Sure. Let's back up. And would you mind, because you you mentioned a little bit about this was a Portuguese venture in the beginning. So tell us a little bit about the story of the 20 humans on the boat and before people start describing what happened on that human experience. Right, sure. Those people came from West Central Africa. Okay. Uh, they came uh, from the state of Ndongo. Mm-hmm. Uh, some might have come from a nearby state called Congo, but we think mostly Ndongo. Uh, there they would have been living in well-developed societies and civilizations, mm-hmm. uh, but they had the unfortunate uh, circumstance of being also being next to a Portuguese colony called Angola, mm-hmm. which the Portuguese had established in 1575. And by the time we get to 1619, the Portuguese governor there had made a decision that there was a profit-making venture to be had by raiding for people, enslaving them, and taking them across the water, either to the Portuguese colony of Brazil Mm -hmm. or to Spanish colonies, where they had contractual obligations with, with the Spanish to deliver enslaved people to Spanish colonies. So those 1619 Africans, they were part of what became 350 enslaved Africans, put on a ship called the Sao Batista, in English to St. John the Baptist, and they were taken across the water. And now they were destined to Veracruz, Mexico, to supply this Spanish colony. And on the way to Veracruz, they were intercepted uh, by two pirating ships, the White Lion and the Treasurer. Mm -hmm. And in this encounter, this battle, uh, these two ships were, took off some supplies, but also about 60 Africans. Mm And then the Shao Batista went on its way to Veracruz. But what happened to those 60 Africans? Well, the white line and the treasure split them up, and then they headed to this new English colony called Jamestown. Mm. And so they came in, and so when we get John Rolfe's notice about 20 and odd Negroes, it's referring to this first ship that arrived, mm-hmm. the white lion. So we think that 20 and odd was actually closer to 30. Okay. And so we have to, as I'm telling this story, I always pause, and this is where the remembrance comes in. Mm. Because can you imagine now, all that you are, all that you have been, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter, all that you are in your society is stripped away. And now your humanity is fully denied, and you're treated as chattel, as a commodity. And you're put into the holds of those vessels. And there is no space because you're chained at the bottom of the holds and there's nowhere for you to go to the bathroom. And if there's sickness in the holds, that spreads. And you are suffering this fate of not only being separated from your loved ones and not knowing exactly where you're going and who these people are who are taking you to some unknown place. So can you imagine the psychological and the physical and the spiritual trauma of that? 
and then you are enslaved again on this pirate ship, going now to another unknown destination, and you arrive now at Point Comfort, where you are described as a Negro, which was a Spanish term that was synonymous with slave at that time. So already there's a language here in English North America introducing a language of slavery, mm -hmm. right? And so that's the storm that they're going through. And so when we talk about 1619, we definitely, as you say, we talk about remembrance because we have to remember that experience even as we tell the story uh, rather quickly in this format. Um, so they arrive, they arrive now at Point Comfort and you can imagine that they're demoralized, they're unfamiliar with language that's being spoken here and who are these people coming down from Jamestown mm. to meet this ship, the White Lion, where they are bought. And that's the language that's used, right? Right. right. Mm -hmm. For victuals, for supplies. Mm -hmm. right? And the two people in particular, the governor, George Yardley, and the Cape Merchant, the person who had control of the company store, mm -hmm. Abraham Piercy, they come down. So it's the political and economic elite of Jamestown who come to Point Comfort to meet the white line, and here are these Africans, now from Point Comfort making their way to the Jamestown colony. Mm -hmm. So that's the dynamic with Point Comfort and Jamestown. Folk in Hampton are absolutely right to say <laughs> <laughs> it was Land. first Point Comfort, right. Hampton, and yes. then they made their way to Jamestown. Right, right. It's been really interesting to see like uh, the almost nerdy disputes that are happening between the Hampton, Jamestown, place and space of fighting over narratives, because we do that here too in Richmond, y'all. But I want to thank you for taking the moment to do the remembrance. I was just thinking that I've heard the story told many times this year and some last year too. And it's a different experience when the historian, the academic voice, also takes a moment to do the remembrance, right? I would expect someone like Shadra Pittman to get me there, but a lot of times we invite the academic voice in to make it a little safer so we don't have to get emotional in that place and see the humanity and, and intersect the, the academic and the, the being, the empathy. Mm. So thank you for doing that. I think it's really important that we model that as well when we tell this story. And it's it's not just a story because I think we've all been socialized to just understand slavery was part of it, right? And just keep right. going. That's right. right, that's right, right. that's right. And I'm black first before I'm an Woo! academic, right? And these are our ancestors that we're talking about, right? right. So it is right. emotional. Right. Absolutely. Right? And we bring that to the table. Right. Um, so right, that's exactly right. And it's supposed to be emotional. I mean, it's just... You know, as you were talking about slavery, um, Muda Baraka has a quote where he says, slavery is not the start of African history, it interrupted African mm. history. And I always love to use this quote because it's so true. It's like when we think about our origins and our beginnings, as Dr. Vincent said, they extend far beyond 1619. In some parts of the world, slavery was happening in the 1500s. Right. But we know, as he said, you know, the cradle of civilization is in Africa. Stereocryptic is Africanus, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. 2881, Lucy mm -hmm. is the oldest uh, bones found. And so uh, when we say the cradle of civilization, that's not just, we're just not saying it just to say it. It is scientifically proven. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's quite interesting that the, as I call it, the mothers and fathers of civilization mm -hmm. were then enslaved. Right. I think that concept is very interesting. We could take the ones who are at the beginning, right. the creators, the, the mother and father of civilization, and, and, and look what slavery did. It was a disregard for humanity. So the work that we're trying to do with 
this conference, I mean, we're really moving beyond, you know, 1619 has been very significant as far as this area is concerned. Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing, I think, Chelsea, about Oswald is that Oswald extends beyond slavery. So, you know, the, the, the international scope of the conference mm -hmm. goes before and beyond. Right. Because in some of the places, like Ethiopia, they were not enslaved. Mm -hmm. So 1619 means nothing to them. Right. It, it, it might mean something to them, mm -hmm. right? You know, as far as the connection to the African-American brothers and sisters, but as far as their history and their context, it doesn't have the same kind of relevance there as it does here. Right. So... The scholars that Dr. Vincent mentioned, the thousand that are coming from all around the world, 30 countries, will be exploring the theme, which is remembrance, right. renaissance, revolution, right. um, the meaning of freedom in the African world over time and space. Yeah. And it, it is really interesting just to be able to see and feel different types of people, right? Because the idea of 1619 is an important theory to list, lift this moment in history. But what happens in 2020 when it's not the 400th year anymore, Absolutely. right? And that's why Oswald and this conference, the people that have been doing this and spreading the story, it's important that you all are also the leaders to take this conversation past 2019 as well. And I also appreciate a lot of the stories that's coming out of Jamestown, like Angela, Angelo. Right. Dr. Vincent, would you mind talking just a little bit about who Angela was and why that name is pretty significant in this year? Right. So she was uh, one of the first to come. She came on the second ship. Right. Um, and she was one of the two or three that were sold before that second ship. The treasurer went to Bermuda. And uh, Bermuda is part of the story as well, because mm -hmm. actually the first imported enslaved person to an English colony was in Bermuda, 1616. Um, so Bermuda and, and Virginia sort of worked together as sort of sister colonies, and so there's a lot of back and forth. And so Angela, or Angelo, the records say Angelo, we think it's Angela. Mm -hmm. We don't know what an Dongolese name would have been, right? and that's the real you know, right. point of interest for me, right? You Look, know? Dr. Vincent, I went to one of these community <laughs> meetings back there, back then, and they were like, well, what else can we do to engage people in the Angela story? I stood up and I was like, well, let's mention that her name probably wasn't Angela at given, right? right? Like, Absolutely. let's go ahead and say that first, because so many people here in Richmond, they, when I would talk about this, they're like, Angela. That was her name. <laughs> and like, I mean, you can't get none past us, right? So they're already checked out of the conversation, right? right? right. So thank you yeah. for, let's let's yeah. put it all out there when we tell the story. I interrupted you. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's the oh, way yeah. that we got to tell that truth, right? Because right. then right. we can start seeing ourselves. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Right. And the name tells us something, right? Because really what the Portuguese were doing, and they had the nerve to do this, they blessed, so-called blessed, the people that they had enslaved, saying that this was a process now that was going, actually going to benefit them mm -hmm. because now they were being Christianized and they were going to enter into the gates of civilization. Right? Mm -hmm. This is the lie, right? Right. Just the rationalization to say this, this is not a bad thing we're doing to y'all. Right. So that name, Angelo, Angela, you take your pick, represents that process mm -hmm. of using Christianity as a justification to enslave people. Right. 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 So right. <laughs> whichever one, wherever people go with that, we got to hold on to that piece. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And and we may not know 
a lot about Angela yet, but that is enough right there to unpack, I think, for the broader Mm -hmm. conversation, right? And we've got to make sure we keep Angela a broader conversation and not the the siloed person in history, which I think is also just a strategic way to not realize our coalition power. Like Mm -hmm. we do it so much here with Maggie L. Walker in Richmond and, and put her on this pedestal. And she was amazing as the banker, but we keep her as that banker instead of talking about her as a politician, as a community advocate, her work working with other people and other sectors to get this done, right? Angela was more than just one person. Absolutely. And we've got to be able to see what her life in that community was like and what who she was before and who, you know, what her story would have been to to connect how we have to also work with one another. Absolutely. Right. To keep these stories, like these conferences going, making our own future and our own history, documenting these moments. So I just I wanted to always make that clear as I like pushing this the Angela Angelo story. Mm-hmm. But and as long as we also realize that this is a broader conversation. Unfortunately, we only have that one name. Well we have a few, few other names. names. Okay. Antonio and Maria Johnson. Okay. Anglicized names Anthony and, and Mary Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a few others, but we don't have. They're mostly not described, given names in right. the records. They're either right. called Negroes or servants, not Christian. Okay. Right. So these are sort of anonymous kind of terms. Right. 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 We don't recognize that humanity. What we do know about her is we know that she was in the household of Abraham Piercy. Mm-hmm. And we know that there's wonderful work being done at Historic Jamestown, doing the archaeological work to find out more about her life. There are a range of people at Historic Jamestown doing that work. Uh, a student, uh, a William and Mary graduate student, Sade Reed. Sade. Is, you know Sade. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. Who's a student of Michael Blakey. Right. right? And so that's the connection here. Yeah. Right. Um, it's very much in the middle of that kind of work. So yep. this is the exciting part right. for, for scholars for, and for anyone who's inter- interested in the story. What comes next? Yeah. What do we find? What, the, what is the material record that right. may still be preserved 400 years later? So right. stay tuned. I mean, it's a, it's a live story. Yes, yes. And they're doing it right now. You could go to Jamestown there, and that's how I stumbled across right. all of this. Right. To be really honest, as I just went down there and started asking a bunch of questions. It was actually because there was a First Africans walking tour that they do, and I'm a, we are interrogators of narratives, and I was like, well, let's see what they say. <laughs> and I was blown away with it, and, it was a, and I was like, yes, I want everyone to hear this. And then I just started asking and talking to more questions, and that's when I met some of these amazing folks down there doing that and to see other black women faces Mm -hmm. and the academic spaces and and as well as you know in t-shirt shorts digging up Mm -hmm. some really amazing stuff i want to give people a little bit more about uh, we've talked a lot about international scope slavery and here in richmond what i found is that we've been able to separate ourselves from the 400 conversation because i was like well yes richmond has a very traumatic and awful past but ours was much later after 1619 and it had to do more with the domestic slave trade and and our involvement with new orleans we were number two and yes we will tell that story but not now not now now is for 1619 we've got the historians here we've got the folks doing the community work here that all over and and doing it in Richmond, right? So give the folks a little bit about why we should care about this and the difference of the transatlantic slave trade as well as the domestic slave trade that then came after, as well as a little bit of history about why it was outlawed to import human cargo as well. Right, sure. Well, the transatlantic slave trade was this huge global enterprise, as we know, Mm -hmm. right? Connecting five or six continents, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And over the course of that trade, 1502 to 1870, 12 to 15 million Africans were enslaved in that journey. Mm-hmm. 
only 500,000 only. That's not the word, right? Right. Because in the context of 12 to 15 million, right? Right. Um, but I say only, only because it's surprising mm-hmm. that 500,000 came to what is now the U.S. So folk kind of deal with that Say, well, wait a minute. I think the U.S. is the center of the world and everything. Right? I know, right? <laughs> and how is it that the majority of these humans who right. were enslaved ended up in Brazil right. or South America or um, the Caribbean? Here's where the domestic slave trade is so important. 500,000 came to these shores in the transatlantic slave trade. One million people who were enslaved moved in a domestic slave trade from states like Virginia to new states like Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama. Now that was in a 60 year time frame. So the transatlantic slave trade, 1502 to 1870, 500,000 make it to the US. In a 60 year frame, twice as many, 1 million move within the United States. And Virginia was at the epicenter of that because Virginia and Richmond specifically was the center of this domestic slave trade where Virginia slaveholders realized that they could get far more value, money for these enslaved people if they sold them down the river further south where the Louisiana Purchase had doubled the size of the United States and created all this land that Thomas Jefferson, slaveholder, declared would be an empire for liberty, it became an empire for slavery. So as our landmass doubled in size, slavery doubled in size. And Virginia, thought to have an overpopulation of enslaved people and deeply worried about slave rebellions like 1800, Gabriel Prosser, 1831, Nat Turner, we got to get some of these folk out of here. <laughs> and we can make some money doing it. And we can make some it, money doing right? it, yeah. And so yeah. that really populates this area now. Yeah. And, and the irony about this, by the way, this is an international story, is that it was the Haitian Revolution mm. that was so much a part of this story. Because the French colony of Saint-Domingue from 1791 was in rebellion. Mm-hmm. Uh, enslaved people rose up. And that Saint-Domingue was France's leading sugar producer. The French territories in North America were sort of peripheral to that. So when Napoleon lost Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti, he's fighting his wars in Europe. He looks at that. I lost my crown jewel, Saint-Domingue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those Haitians, I can't get them back into the fold. Right. Right? Right. So he looks at French North America and says, well, that's not as valuable to me. Uh-huh. I'll sell that for those $15 million right. because my interests now are in Europe. Right. And so that's how we double that land space. right? So indirectly, it's through an act of freedom, mm-hmm. the only instance in world history of yep. a slave rebellion completely overturning a slave society and producing a free nation and within that. But very quickly, coming back to the domestic slave trade, again, we remember and we honor because in this domestic slave trade, we're talking about family separations, right. left and right. right. So we have folk here who have found a way out of no way to deal with this situation and say, okay, at least perhaps I can have some semblance of family life. Perhaps I can raise kids in some fashion. Perhaps I can make a way for myself in this storm. And even then now, after the transatlantic slave trade, Mm -hmm. now we have this domestic slave trade that separates families. And we see this. So by the time we get to 1860, the U.S. has 4 million enslaved African Americans. Wow. That makes it the largest slave society in world history. And the domestic slave trade 
and the doubling of the size of the U.S. with the Louisiana Purchase makes that possible. Four million enslaved, there were only 4.5 million African Americans in 1860. So only 500,000 are not enslaved, and they're living in a form of quasi-slavery anyway. Anyway. Second class. They're not even regarded as citizens. It's a Dred Scott decision. Exactly. exactly. So, so Richmond and Virginia have a central role in that story. Right, right. And if we don't learn to start telling our story before the good parts here in Richmond, like you did when I asked you about 1619, then we won't understand how these stories align as well as how it's our responsibility here in Richmond to uncover and do a lot of these storytelling events that continue to lift these history, these facts. Here in Richmond, most people have no idea that we were the epicenter of the domestic slave trade. They still get mixed up between the transatlantic slave trade and the domestic slave trade. They just feel like it's all one big piece. We're over it. We're done. Why are we still talking about this? They don't understand that the grounds that they're walking on in Chaco Bayon, that new restaurant, absolutely, the history that's underneath your feet right there, right? And even going to the African burial grounds, there's this narrative that that might not even be our real, true, sacred space because when we did the archaeological dig, we didn't find anything five to six acres. come on five to six acres of lower manhattan i used to tell people when we used to do talks and we used to do tours that that area is wall street so the literal and figuratively the foundation of the wealth of right. american capitalism right are black bodies yes mm-hmm. come on literally under the ground come on so you know when 9 11 happened people used to say oh it's ground zero it's a burial ground it has always been a burial ground. It has been. And so we need to unearth these stories and tell the truth of the contributions that Africans have made. And um, the fact, I mean, those numbers are just startling. Right. So out of 4.5 million, only 500,000 were quasi-free. I mean, think about that. And everyone else was bred out of capitalism and wealth. I mean, literally breeding a workforce. Well, breeding a workforce. And when you think about the, the way in which slavery was passed down through the mother, so it didn't matter who the father was. Right. So you have, when you look at miscegenation rates, yes. you look at children being born through African mothers and European enslavers, those children yep. would be enslaved. Right. So this perpetual slavery that right. just extends generation after generation after right. generation. Right. So right. That's right. It's daunting. And that's why y'all are bringing the Oswald Conference right here to Richmond. <laughs> that's right. Because <laughs> we've got some things to talk about. And maybe before we get there, we have some history we have to learn about our people all over across the world. So tell us, what are some things to be excited about with the conference? I've read about it. I'm super hype about it. Give us some deets. It's, so it's amazing. I just, okay, so Oswad is for the Association for the Study of the Worldwide African Diaspora, mm-hmm. a.k.a. it means amazing, okay? <laughs> Actually, Oswad means uh, black in Arabic. And so this conference, as I said before, the theme of the conference is Remembrance, Renaissance, Revolution, the Meaning of Freedom in the African World over Time and Space. We are going to have over a thousand scholars over uh, representing 30 countries coming here, scholars, activists, artists. We are going to have events at the Jamestown, Yorktown settlement sponsored by American Evolution. We are going to have uh, a Garvey panel mm-hmm. up here in Richmond at the VMHC. Dr. Claudrina Harold, Dr. Shani Roper, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Robert Vinson, other scholars are going to be participating, looking at, and we're actually, we're, we're 
were collaborating with the VMHC because they did an amazing exhibit called Determined. Mm-hmm. Uh, Karen Sherry curated that. And so, Karen, we yes, Karen. she's amazing. <laughs> she's amazing. That whole crew over there is just amazing. And so we are partnering with them and we said, well, wow, you're doing this Determined exhibit. Why don't we do a panel around this notion of self-determination, Kujichakalia, right? What black people have done across the world. And so who better to do that and talk about that than Garvey Scholars. Right. With the UNIA, we're also doing, we're going to have a film festival. Oh my goodness. An African diasporic film festival led by the one and only actor, filmmaker, extraordinaire, Tim Reed, okay? And so that's really exciting. We're having international films come from Nigeria, from all across the diaspora. We are going to have a play by uh, Omiyemi Artisha Green. She's a William & Mary professor. That's going, to be, that's going to take place at William & Mary. We're going to have a dance performance mm. by William & Mary professor Leah Glenn. Mm. And uh, the artwork that's going to be shown is going, that's the Renaissance part. That's going to be by Steve Prince, who's at the Muscarelli Museum of Art. We have amazing connections with the Reeves Center for wow. International Studies, who has partnered with us, the Omohundro Institute, Colonial Williamsburg. Okay. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. We have so much in store. So not only are you going to have the scholarly, you're going to have the art, mm-hmm. you're going to have the comments about revolution and how we are self-determined. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be amazing. Am I, am I leaving anything out, Dr. Vincent? Hmm. Tanahasi <laughs> Coates? Did we mention Tanahasi Coates? Come on, I was waiting. You know, I figured, you know, <laughs> I wanted to do the drum it. roll, <laughs> drum roll. Yes, so the one and only. Yes, yes. Tanahasi so, yeah, will be here and, and he'll be promoting a new book. He has a new mm-hmm. book coming out. And also Cal Anderson. I don't know if you know. I didn't know that. No yes. White yes. Rage. White yes. Rage. Yes. yes. White, she will I, be here. I pump White Rage to. She's amazing. I do a lot of racial facilitation. She's, she's wonderful. She's incredible. Yes. And she is incredible. Yes. And to see her live, her and Tanahasi. Yeah. No, it's going to be. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. So we're we're thrilled. We're, oh my This goodness. is going to be a big deal. I didn't Huge. know that. They Huge. surprised me with Cal mm-hmm. Anderson. Mm-hmm. I literally drop her handle on Twitter every chance I get and be like. Mm-hmm. Conversations. Anyway, well, speaking about Twitter, may I just yes. say one thing? Do it. All so, of it. if you're if you're interested in Oswald, if you want to post things about Oswald, please hashtag Oswald A S W A D twenty nineteen. Okay, that's our Twitter hashtag, and so we're trying to create some buzz around Oswald. So, if you see anything around Tanahasi or around Oswald, um, please hashtag Oswald twenty nineteen. But the other place I want to tell you that we're going is to Fort Monroe. Mm-hmm. So while, you know, in this 400th year where we are remembering the 20 and odd Africans and all the other ancestors that have come through, mm-hmm. we're going to take this group of scholars to Fort Monroe so they can actually touch the ground yeah. of that space yeah. to see where these Africans first came in. It's important coming from around the world to go to that place and yeah. see the port of entry. Absolutely. The place where they arrived. And clearly we know that Africans arrived and existed in the Americas prior to 1619. We know the work Mm. of Dr. Ivan Van Sertema, who said that they came before Columbus. So we know that. But in the 1619 context, we are going to Fort Monroe for that purpose. Mm -hmm. And uh, Terry Brown, who's the superintendent there, who's doing an amazing job. He just had an amazing day of healing with the 400th commemoration. He's going to be giving a welcome to the Oswald group. Nice. So all of this is going down, but let's be real. Like, how can people support you with their dollars, right? Like, how can people give to you and just kind of follow? I see that there are some sponsorship opportunities. Where can they find us on the website and push this around? 
Yeah, so Oswad is, uh, you can find us. Yes, yeah, so we want support. Please come yes. out, support us financially. That would be wonderful. We'd love to have your sponsorship. You can log on to www.oswaddiaspora.org. Mm-hmm. So nice. it's A S W A D I A S P O R A dot org. Okay, so 1D. 1D. Gotcha. 1D. Um, so I just want to say this also. So we're going to be in Richmond. So I have to push the Richmond spot. Do okay, it. so we said the VMHC. We're also going to have our our closing reception at the VMFA, the beautiful VMFA. And we're, um, that's where Leah Glynn is going to be doing her dance performance. And Who are uh, you working with over at the VMFA? The one and only Valerie Castle Oliver. There we go. As well as Michelle Oliver. She's fantastic too. Yes. Valerie is going to be uh, talking about her cosmologies exhibit that mm-hmm. she did of the South, which if you have not seen it, it is incredible mm-hmm. to walk through and experience. So, you know, the conference, as I said, Remembrance. Mm-hmm. We're going to have Remembrance Ceremonies at different points throughout. We've lost some members of Oswald. Um, Founder, founding members, founding members right. of Oswald have passed on, and so we will be remembering them as well as other people mm-hmm. like uh, Mariel Franco, mm-hmm. who was killed in Brazil, um, who was an activist. We will also remember Rosalind... Herbert Penn. Mm-hmm. She was one of the founders. Colin Palmer, uh, Sterling Stuckey. These were all foundational people of Oswald, but really of the scholarship of the African diaspora. Right. Extraordinarily important. And, and they've all passed within the past year. Wow. So they become the ancestors part of our remembrance. Absolutely. Exactly. And just tell us from like your authentic space, Shadra, like, why is it important to make spaces for these remembrances? Yeah, well, we have to remember the ones that came before us. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said, you know, this year of 2019 is commemorating. And, you know, we're very particular about the language that we use. So we don't, we try to abstain from saying anniversary or celebration because no one celebrates the Holocaust. No one celebrates the Native American genocide. No one celebrates Japanese who were in American internment camps, right? So we don't celebrate those things. We're not celebrating slavery. Um, we are remembering um, the time period um, that happened. And it's important to create space because if we don't, no one will. <laughs> I mean, the reality is we've been left out of the history books. Um, Virginia Woolf always says that anonymous in history is usually a woman. Come on. And I would, always, I would amend that to say, or black people, or marginalized people, or cis, or gender non-binary people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to create space to remember mm-hmm. uh, where we've come from right. so that we can create and make movements for where we want to go. Right. And you even mentioned Ground Zero before, and we've, we've seen some interviews with you talking about 9-11 and that the way that we remember those types of spaces and anniversaries. Right. right? And that's what you're trying to do here with different stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the reason why, just to add this real quick, the reason why we even do Remembrance at Buckrow Beach mm-hmm. is because Buckrow Beach in Hampton, the Sankofa Projects, my organization, we do Remembrance at Buckrow Beach because Buckrow Beach was segregated mm-hmm. during Jim Crow. And so black people got together in 1898 and decided that they were going to create a space and they named it Bayshore Beach. Mm. And it was one of the safe spaces where black people could be human. Mm. They just wanted to go to the beach and play with their families and frolic in the water. But they couldn't do it at Buck Row because it was off limits because of Jim Crow. And so they created Bayshore Beach and we do remembrance at Buck Row Beach annually because we stand on the ground where our ancestors were forbidden to stand upon. So it is an act of resistance. 
It is an act of self-determination. It is, a, it is an act of claiming space yep. that should have been ours in the first place. Right. All these places, whether it's Native Americans, whether it's African Americans, whether it's marginalized people, LGBT, gender non-binary, you know, we have to create space for us because there is no space. Exactly. You know, we're not invited to the table. So oftentimes we have to come in, bring our own chair, maybe even create a chair, make a chair while we're there. Um, but we have to be at the table. Right. Because Chinua Achebe says, you know, until the lion has its historian, Dr. Vincent, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So if we don't tell these stories, or ancestor Octavia Butler, I love, who says that we have to make room for ourselves. We have to put ourselves in these stories. So in creating spaces, that's what we're doing with Oswald. Oswald is coming at the heels of this 2019 Mm -hmm. big event. We're happening in November, November 5th 5th through the 9th. Mm -hmm. It's being hosted by William & Mary. American Evolution is one of our big sponsors. And we are creating space to remember Mm -hmm. all the contributions that Africans have made globally around the world and the ways that we have uh, continued to to share our history and culture. Right. And where can they find, one last time, more information about Oswald? So you can find Oswald, you can go to the website, so www.oswaddiaspora1d.org. You can also email us at oswald.org. 2019 at wm.edu. Great, great. All right. Can't let you all get out of here without our favorite segment of the show. What's your privilege? What's your privilege is a segment of the show where we invite the guests to identify their privilege that they carry in the world and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. Who would like to go first? He just gave me the head nod. I guess that means I'm going first. She's my boss. I will do as I am told. Okay. (laughs) So, um, so how do I disrupt the myth of white supremacy by using my privilege? Um, I would say one of my privileges uh, is being a cis woman. Mm -hmm. I enter spaces that my trans sisters cannot, Mm -hmm. and so I make it uh, a point to invite them in with me and to speak of them and to always have them as a part of the conversation as we move forward. You know, in the feminist movement, uh, a lot of times, you know, there's all this infighting racially that happens. Um, Black women have felt left out and have been left out of the feminist movement because white women, in some cases, have positioned themselves to white men for that proximal power that Rebecca Traster talks about. And so, you know, and then our cis women, Sometimes we'll do that to the trans sisters. And, um, and so I just, you know, the work that I'm about has always been about acknowledging our humanity. I think all these things that have happened that have really ripped us apart. Um, Toni Morrison has an amazing quote where she says, I'm a quote, I love quotes. I, I feel like, why reinvent the wheel? Like, I, I love, she says, slavery broke the world. It broke it in every way. Mm-hmm. That's Toni Morrison, who just mm-hmm. recently passed. And so, Part of the work that I want to do is try to help heal. Yes. How do we heal from these horrible things? So I use my privilege as a cis woman to come in and create spaces for my sisters uh, and brothers. Thank you so much for that because so much, so many times in these conversations we're not talking about gender, sexuality, identity. Mm-hmm. And for you to be such a leader and a storyteller and to show up in the spaces you do and also lift black trans women is 
incredibly important and means the world to me, especially as someone that uh, my sister is a trans woman and just trying to survive. And she just turned 29 last week. And that is right something on. to celebrate, right? Yes. For our young black trans women. So thank you thank for you. that. Uh, Dr. Robert Trent Vinson, what is your privilege? One, being a man in a patriarchal world and you know, at the apex of white supremacy are white men mm-hmm. who um, use their whiteness and their maleness to wield a disproportionate amount of power over others. So part of being understanding as a man that I can walk in the world in ways that most women cannot, mm-hmm. my way to try to interrupt that dynamic is to be very close talking with other men, mm-hmm. young men particularly, moving away from ideas of toxic masculinity. Yeah. And I think it's really important for men to talk to other men, particularly young boys, mm-hmm. about these dynamics because we are more likely perhaps to be heard than if it's a woman absolutely uh, speaking to them, right? Uh, because that's so important to interrupt that dynamic. There's not enough men mm-hmm. talking to other men, mm-hmm. um, particularly boys about that. Mm-hmm. And I do that a lot with my students and with young people around me. I think the other area where I'm extraordinarily privileged is economic. As a professor, I come from poverty. I, I come from a people who never had any generational wealth to pass down, mm-hmm. right? That is what slavery was. It was right. a form of theft, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of, of wealth, of resources, both material and human resources. Um, so I'm, I'm very much aware of the fact that I am really the first generation that's actually going to pass down something wow. to my daughter, right? So there's a responsibility there. But that wealth, relative, <laughs> because professors don't make that much. <laughs> come on. So oh, come straight. now. I was come now. Adjunct. I was like, tell me <laughs> okay. more about okay. this wealth. I'm that deep, right? But relative to how my ancestors have lived right. in this country for all of these years, right. I get to travel. Yeah. I get to go to my research site of South Africa. Yeah. And so there was an extraordinarily historian scholar uh, named Walter Rodney mm-hmm. who wrote a seminal book called uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. But he also wrote another book called Groundings with My Brothers. Mm-hmm. And he was from Guyana. Mm-hmm. And he moved from Jamaica to Tanzania and moved around the world. Grounding, what he called grounding. Right? And he used the patriarchal language of brothers, right? mm-hmm. but he was also engaged with brothers and sisters mm-hmm. from around the world engaged in Pan-African struggle, mm-hmm. connecting struggles from around the world. So when I'm in South Africa, I feel like I'm doing some of that grounding with right. my sisters and brothers, connecting what's happening in South Africa mm-hmm. with this legacy of segregation and apartheid with the U.S., with yeah. our own legacies of, of white supremacy. And really grounding that. So my privilege of being able to travel yes. comes with a responsibility to connect with people that look like me, right. who have broadly similar histories and struggles, right. Right? and we ground with each other. Yeah, that's so powerful. And, and just like I told Shadra just now, hearing a black man in, in your space that's very much within the African ancestry history telling space and talk about toxic masculinity mm. It's not mm. something we hear much in the South, especially. Mm. And it, it's very powerful and it means everything. And very quickly, my privilege, and I try not to say this every time we have these amazing guests, but my privilege is just being around these folks doing the work and that have all this knowledge. And I may not be able to travel the way I would want to yet, but hearing these stories, sitting in rooms with you all, going to conferences like Oswald gives me the strength, the representation, and the inspiration to continue to do what I want to do. Yeah. And that flexibility and that privilege and being here with other incredible journalists that just take my social work lens and help me put it out there in a ways that's newsworthy and 
teaching other people and bringing them with me as well, especially my hometown of Richmond, this is this is a privilege to me. Mm. So thank you all for being here and joining us today. Thank you for your work. Yeah. And thank you for creating space for us. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to Ashe. We look forward to um, hearing more about Oswald V through the Ninth. We'll definitely report back and maybe get some coverage there for we all the listeners here. There. Yes. And come always come back. You're welcome back on Race Capital, y'all. But thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. Engaging in the conversation with Dr. Vincent and Shadra Pittman, I realized that when we came up for the name of the show, Race Capital, we were thinking about the former capital of the Confederacy, but truly bringing up the 1619 story 400 years ago, we are really the race capital of this country. We were the folks that created the slave system that was rooted within race, even though slavery had been happening across the globe. We were the ones that created this hierarchy through race, through capitalism, because of the skin color. So what does that mean if we're rooted right here in Richmond and Virginia of the race capital of the world that also created the inequities? I mean, our entire population of black people grew and we are here taking up as much space because the history includes us being bred for our work. That is how our, we were seen. We're for human cargo and mules. Yeah, and meanwhile, there are so many stories of colonists that are told in that time that haven't been erased. You can find those archives. You can find that information. Those narratives were preserved. Right. And how we value our humanity is evident in the narratives that we choose to preserve. And one thing that I encountered when researching for this episode was how little information there is out there about the journey of enslaved Africans from Hampton to Jamestown and then to Richmond. Right. I couldn't find a lot of stories about how they came to Richmond. Hmm. And so I am really eager to learn more about that. And I'm going to continue researching that. And I invite all of you listeners to join us in that process. Yep. So that we can continue to learn these histories and tell the stories and connect it to what's happening right now. Right. Dr. Vincent mentioned that the two gentlemen that went off to Hampton and brought back the enslaved people to Jamestown were those of the highest political status and the highest economic status status to create this economic development for the new settlement. And what does that sound like? It's the same type of partnerships that we see happening right here in the city of Richmond of politicians and those with high places in the economic society making the plans for how we are going to develop the place, space, and land that we occupy. And that's why the histories are so important to know, why we need to know the stories of the Africans that came out of Richmond. We know that one-fourth of African Americans have historic ties to Richmond because we were the epicenter of the breeding ground. And it's also the reason why we need to continue to lift Omolade Janine Bell. We need to challenge the political decisions that are made. A lot of the folks that are used to this and that have the experience are also the ones that are just keeping the same models and strategies of those that purchased our ancestors off of the boats 400 years ago. And that just brings me to the point that Richmond has done barely nothing for this 400th year. Our place of the Devil's Half Acre is still hidden within construction. We weren't ready, nor did we have any intention to invite people to our place and space to hear about the horrors that happened here. 
why haven't why hasn't there been anything and why is it the oswald conference is coming here and saying hey you all got to be part of this conversation too we bringing you with us we could have been created these spaces and given the resources to people like Omalade Janine Bell to then do exactly what Shadra Pittman is doing and bringing people to our place and space, right? I know I'm fortunate enough to be so close to these histories, but I'm also looking for answers on how we can engage as many folks as possible on this. You know, you all reach out to us all the time through social media. If there is something else you want to know about these stories or how else we can get them out there, please reach out to us. We want people to be curious. We want to spark your interest and we want to hold your conversations. So between now and November, I know, Kat, you said you're going to continue to dive into the local history. Yep. We've heard about some big names that are coming to the conference and some readings that people could catch up on. Right, so Carol Anderson's White Rage and Ta-Nehisi Coates's Everything Between the World and Me is one of his most popular works. And he also had a really beautiful compilation, We Were Eight Years in Power. Mm. So that's some recommended reading. Mm -hmm. We will keep you all posted on social media as we go through our research journey here, trying to trace the narratives of enslaved Africans who were dragged from the coast of Virginia inland toward Richmond. We'll keep you posted on what we find. And Kat, I really just appreciate you being part of this journey and part of this story and understanding the need for these narratives. It is important for so many people of color, especially of African ancestry, to see folks not have to be convinced that this is part of all of our history. And I just appreciate you being on this journey with me and just as curious about this, just as the rest of Richmond needs to be. So keep up with what's going on, everybody. Um, we're so excited about Oswald and we're excited to continue telling these Richmond and international stories here on Race Capital. And we'll catch you next time. There's something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I've got to beware I think it's time we stop children What's that sound? Everybody look what's going Is right if everybody's wrong.